Going Linux, episode 260, listener feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and its applications and using them to get things done. In today's episode, listener feedback. If you would like to send us feedback, our email address is goinglinux at gmail.com and our voicemail number is 1-904-468-7889. Hey Bill, before we get started with our episode, I have to say... Hello and thank you to Ken Leba, his son Andrew, Matthew McGraw, Bert Yerke, his wife Monica, and Matt Williams, also known as Lord Drakenblut. Why am I saying thanks to these people? Because I met them at Scale 13X, and we had lunch together. It's great to finally meet some of the people from the going Linux community. I'd actually met Ken before, uh, but this was the first time meeting everyone else, and we had a great time over lunch, and in the conversations we had, it was great. Oh, cool. I wish you had been able to be there, Bill. I, I, I want to try to go one of these years. <laughs> you know, being on the East Coast, is that's a, that's a heck of a ride. Well, maybe you can make it to Southeast Linux faster. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you guys had a good time? We did, we did. I saw the uh, Jupiter Broadcasting guys doing their recording there, and I didn't talk to them, but uh, I saw them. They were in the middle of an interview when I saw them. So uh, lots of good uh, Linux exposure and some good talks, and uh, I had a good time. Well, that's cool. That's yeah. really cool. I'm glad you had a good time. Hey, I got some sad news. Mr. Spock died. Is that a Nimoy? Yes. He, he died. I'm kind of bummed by that. Well, he's... Uh, Hero to many a geek. Many a Linux geek, I might add. <laughs> yes, that too. Yes. Yeah. So, a moment of silence for Leonard Nimoy. Okay, Leonard, that's all you're getting. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, seriously, he was. A, uh, I heard he was a really nice guy, and, you know, he, he would end all his uh, posts with, you know, live long and prosperous. So, his was always lap on the end of uh, of his posts mm -hmm. been doing that for years so that was we're thinking about his family and uh hoping for the best and in this time of trouble yeah all right what do we got now Anything okay exciting? yeah yeah as a matter of fact um as part of our listener feedback we got some feedback from nightwise by way of an audio file and it's not your regular feedback either it's an audio file from his interview with Italo of LibreOffice when Nightwise was at FOSDEM about a month ago so at the end of this episode we'll play that interview as part of Nightwise feedback and we'll learn some things about LibreOffice I'm sure Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Nightwise is into everything, isn't he? He is. He <laughs> definitely is. Our next email comes from Dave, and he writes, Gents, I want to migrate to Linux, but not sure which distro. I'm not sure if I like Ubuntu or Lubuntu, but they seem to be the easiest to set up. To start with, uh, Mint seems to be an option. 
I have worked with Windows since Windows 95, and on a scale of 1 to 10, my comfort level is 7 to 8. I'm comfortable with Linux directory structure and am comfortable with editing the files and can move things around in VI. What I'm not comfortable with is getting something working that breaks or is not working in the, in the first place. My vision is to migrate our small business from Windows to Linux within the next coming year. Where can I find relevant up-to-date info for this project of mine? And I'm glad I found your site. Thanks to Charles Tyndale. Um, Larry, he could probably get find uh, a bunch of information about that if he's going to use Ubuntu on the Ubuntu forums. Mm -hmm. um, there's a distro watch is always a good one to uh, just kind of look at. Uh, and Linux Insider is, is interesting. Maybe OM, OEM, let's see, OMG Ubuntu. Yep. Do you have any other things that you might be, could look up? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of things that, that we've actually posted as well. Um, he could look at an article in our article tab on the website, goinglinux.com, uh, entitled Open Source in Business. And there's uh, an article there as well on Linux software equivalents you might want to take a look at. And we've discussed some of this in episode 233 of the podcast as well. So, Dave, if you haven't listened to that, you might want to take a listen there. And between all of those resources, I think um, you can uh, get some some good advice on uh, moving your business, small business, to uh, to Linux. And thanks to Charles Tendell for sending yes. you our way. Our next email is from Ambrose. Ambrose wrote, guys, I have a problem that's been bothering me now for some time, and I can find little information about it on the series of tubes thing. I have a Toshiba Cosimo, Cosmio, Cosmio, whatever it is, X505 running Zubuntu 14.04. The laptop has these extra keys on it for controlling media. I call them media keys. I don't know how they are referred to in the wider community, probably as media keys. <laughs> so I, th I think that, that name fits, that's for sure. They are used either to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles or to play music CDs without booting the OS. I think it's the latter. They include volume control keys, fast forward, rewind, pause, play, and some other stuff. The system power button is also part of this array. They seem to work as intended while running. At least I sometimes use them to change the volume and use them successfully, I might add. I've come so far. The problem is the keys are on the left side next to the keyboard. So when I'm typing on the terminal, I have a tendency to brush these media keys often without knowing I did it. It's similar to the problem people have with touchpad mice when they're typing in a word processor. Unfortunately, sometimes this will A, kill an XFCE terminal window so I can no longer type in it. A new terminal has the same problem. And... <sighs> Hate people who switch numbering schemes in the middle <laughs> to <laughs> kill the menu and sometimes things on panels. Four, 
Roman numeral four, kill the desktop so I can no longer bring up right-click menu. I think that just pressing the media keys is not the problem. I think the problem occurs when my left tentacle leans on the keys, causing it to repeat. Maybe I could fix this by logging in again or rebooting, but of course, since the desktop is effectively dead, there is no alternative but to hard reset with the power button. This has often caused me to lose extremely valuable and creative shell scripts I sometimes write. If Toshiba had ever consumer tested this thing, I don't think it would have been long before they realized these keys should have been placed above the keyboard where they would harm no one. So my question is, short of a hammer, do you know of any way to turn these things off? <laughs> I've tried putting a strip of cardboard over them. Doesn't help. I've looked in XFCE settings, but can't find anything. I wouldn't even know where to start to look in X. Note that any solution should not turn off the power button, which is part of the panel. Thanks. You need to do three or four more shows each week. Minimum. Ambrose. <laughs> three to four more shows a week. What do you think about that, Bill? Uh, let me think about that. No. No. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. No, no, but heck no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as far as the keys and turning them off, I really don't have a, a good answer for disabling specific keys on your keyboard. But there is a tool that we discussed in episode 216. Uh, and it's about 50 minutes into the episode we mention it, and it's called XDO Tool. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. It's a utility that helps you mess with keys like this, and maybe that could help you turn it off. And if anyone in the Going Linux community has a better suggestion on disabling specific keys in the um, multimedia keys that are on a, a particular laptop, in this case, this Toshiba, it would be greatly appreciated, and I'm sure Ambrose would really appreciate it as well. That does seem kind of annoying. Yeah. You can't. It's got, it's got to be somewhere that ties into all the, that stuff. You had for the media, played the CD, and open web browser, you know those little buttons that run up there? Yeah. And I, a lot of times, once you install Linux, you just, they don't work. So ah, well, I've always found them to work. Um, Did you? Yeah, they, they work on my System76. Uh, they've, of course, uh, <laughs> they work on my external um, Logitech uh, wireless keyboard. They've worked on my HP laptops. And uh, it's just worked out of the box. Maybe it's because I'm using Mint. Or you could. Or, <laughs> or, 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 oh, never mind. I'm not. I'm not even touching that with a ten foot pole. Our next email comes from Krill, and he goes, "Good morning, guys. I'm a fan of your show, and I aspire not to miss too many of your episodes, as I find you have good advice. I use Ubuntu at home, and I need to RDP into my computers at work." Would you be able to recommend a good client that is capable of supporting multi-monitor on Ubuntu? Thanks, Creel. Larry, this one's yours. Okay, so RDP is Remote Desktop Protocol, and it is a Windows service. And there is a uh, utility that I use called Remina, and it's capable of RDP. It's capable of 
VNC connections to a computer as well, and it seems to handle multi-monitor without any problem. Uh, it will be available in your Linux repositories with any luck, uh, or you can download it from SourceForge. We'll have a link in the show notes on that. That would be the client that I would recommend. The other thing you can do is just do a quick Google search on RDP client for Linux. You'll find a lot of references to RDP. Uh, there may be some others like No Machine and so on that you might want to take a look at, but RDP is the one for Linux that seems to work the best. We'll have a link to an article from Tech Radar in our show notes that describes uh, using Remina, it describes using RDK, is it RDK? No, KRDC that's on the KDE desktop, another client if you're using KDE, and discusses the RDP protocol and VNC and so on to, to make your connections. So between those articles and the possibility of using Remina directly, uh, I think you should uh, be able to find what you're looking for. Yeah, that's probably the best way to go about it. Yep. Our next email is from Maten, and uh, he writes, Hello, Larry and Bill. First of all, I have been a longtime listener of your podcast. It was one of the first podcasts I started listening to, and it is always interesting and entertaining. In episode 268, you mentioned installing Linux to an SD card. I tried something similar. I tried to install Linux on a USB thumb drive, not by means of Unet Bootin or Pendrive Linux with persistence. This is what I'm using now, by the way. It was not ideal. The OS was in my native language, Dutch, and the other software is in English. With a full installation, it is easier to get everything in Dutch, but by installing from an ISO in USB thumb drive, number one, to a thumb drive number two, I run into the problems of the OS will not boot from the thumb drive number two. I remembered to install Grub to the thumb drive. I think I will have to edit Grub on the thumb drive with the OS installed, but I can't figure out how to edit Grub too. And this is from a live USB with a Linux or normal Windows machine. I found a lot of documentation on how to edit Grub, but not the information I need. It's quite hard to read all the big chunks of literature that is technical and not in your own language. Could you help me out with how to edit Grub, or do I have to use a different approach? Here's some more information. I have only one laptop with Windows 7. I want to use Linux, but the rest of the family does not have any interest whatsoever for Linux. So eventually the machine may not have an install of Linux. So running Linux from a USB thumb drive would be the closest I can get for now. I want to install Linux Mint Mate or Ubuntu Mate because the Mate desktop is easy to use and to my liking. Ubuntu or Mint are both solid and stable distributions, both with very active communities. I hope this email is readable. As I mentioned before, English is not my native language. Greetings from the Netherlands and keep up the good work, Matein. So, what do you think, Bill? Hmm. So, just so I understand what uh, he's saying, he's, he's trying to get uh, where he can run Linux off the USB key, right? Yep, and he's okay. able to do that, but he's got a live USB stick. And okay. he's trying to use that to install Linux 
as though the USB key, his second USB key, were a hard drive. He's trying to install it to that USB stick. Well, the way it used to work for me is that once I uh, I used something like um, UNet boot or whatever, I, I would download the image and then I'd point UNet boot and, and tell it I wanted to create me a uh, a live uh, Linux install, but then also told it I wanted to take part of of the uh, like a little stick and have it where it could I could store files in it, mm-hmm. and it and it just automatically wrote um, the grub. If his computer is set where it doesn't look for USB drives to start up, or it's way down the list, he might have to go up and tell it to either list all his boot options or put that um, the thumb drive at the beginning of the uh, in the BIOS as the first one to look for. If it didn't see it, then it just starts normally. Right. I think. I think that would solve it. Yeah, um, it's quite possible. And I think one of Matane's problems is the fact that he's his first language is not English, and a lot of the documentation on installing and repairing Grub is in English. So we've actually sent him a number of links to YouTube videos that actually describe how to do this and show you how to repair grub. And if you want as well, you might want to go back to episode 269 where we talk about what to do when things go wrong on Linux. We have some links there to some other resources on how to uh, restore grub. So between those and the video links we'll include in the show notes here, I think you should be able to uh, watch and listen. And I know that it's sometimes easier to listen in a second language and understand better than reading in a second language, especially when it's technical documentation. So hopefully those videos will help you out. Larry, we got a, uh, a quick little tip from Andreas about when the, how to turn things off in GNOME 3. And he says you uh, just can tap the power once and don't hold it and it will shut off. Yeah, I think it actually, depending on your settings, that will prompt you uh, to shut it off. Yeah, and I think this whole thing came about because the GNOME 3 moved the shutdown from someplace to someplace else. Uh, I, I don't use GNOME 3 on a regular basis, so do you know what happened there? Uh, well, I think it's if you look up in the right upper right-hand corner, it's hidden until you put your mouse cursor up there mm-hmm. and it pops down. And you'll see a thing, a little wheel that says it's for the power, so you can do it that way. Okay, all right. Yeah, but just one thing about shutting uh, Linux off, by, and I do just hit it and hold it and shut it down hard, that will mess up a file system if it's writing something to it. Yeah, so you want to so make sure you, you don't do that. be very careful with doing that kind of stuff. You bet. All right, well, our next email is from Rob, who writes, Hi, on show 266, you discussed TrueCrypt going away. If your listeners still want to get a copy, Steve Gibson of the Security Now podcast has made an archive of the last fully working version of TrueCrypt available for download along with an explanation page. And we'll include a link to Steve Gibson's site. Uh, Thanks, regards, Rob. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, so TrueCrypt, just for review, uh, was an excellent encryption uh, utility that allowed you to encrypt files or folders or an entire hard drive if you wanted to. 
and then they stopped supporting it. They shut the project down and actually went so far as to say it's insecure and don't use it, go use Windows BitLocker. Uh, and of course, that doesn't help people who aren't using Windows. But, um, you know, uh, Steve Gibson, who is a security expert, uh, is um, uh, convinced that the version of TrueCrypt that they actually had before they shut down was completely secure and so he's making it available for those who are interested in it so use it at, uh, at your own risk yes use it at your own risk our next message comes from tony and he writes hi larry i am still using mint 16 because i'm having issues with it backing up it's just not backing up another problem since then came up i'm getting a lot of all snap he's dead jim errors but I hope it's nothing serious either. Tony, don't know what to tell you about your backing up your hard drive. Um, you got to make sure you have enough space to, to make a copy. Uh, and the all snap, that's a browser error in the Chrome. Uh, you could check and see if you have an updated, if you have the updated version of, um, of, of your inoculations and stuff like that. That might, that might solve that problem. Yeah, and assuming that the website isn't down, uh, the other things you can try are a different browser. Uh, if that works, then you may have an issue with the original browser that you're using. And make sure you have an Ethernet connection, of course, or your cable is plugged in, or you have a wireless connection. And if you've got a wireless connection, then make sure that you're connected to Wi-Fi. If all of your connections through the uh, network are seem to be fine, then try resetting your router. Sometimes your router uh, may not be letting you get to a site or two. Uh, and if that doesn't work, you can always try restarting your computer and that will establish a new network connection. Um, and that's all assuming that this is actually a network issue and not an issue with either the website or the browser or a plugin or something like that. So it could be a number of different things, Tony. We can't really tell with the brief bit of information you provided. Thanks for letting us know about that. Yeah. Our next email is from Greg. Greg writes, greetings, Bill and Larry. I got first billing. <laughs> yes, you did. Just a... Quick question regarding fixed IP addresses from your recent feedback episode. Larry was expressing frustration with his ISP provided router and its blocking of any device not given an address through DHCP. It might be possible to set up a DHCP reservation to fix this problem. The user interface of routers will vary, but essentially you need to create a mapping between your computer or printer's MAC address and the desired IP address. Now, when an IP address is requested via DHCP, the same address will be given. This effectively sets a static IP address, but is more flexible. For example, a laptop that moves between home and work regularly can have a different set IP address on each network with no configuration required by the user. DHCP reservations are a much easier way of configuring IP addresses than static IPs. Love the show. Cheers, Greg, in New Zealand. And I took Greg's suggestion. I went into my router setup and it wasn't called DHCP reservation. It was called something else, but I could do exactly what he said and it fixed my problem for me. And I'm happy. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, thanks, Greg. 
David writes to us, Larry, he writes, I plan on installing Lubud 2 on an SD card. I figure I will install it as normal, but it occurred to me that I could use UNET boot to install the ISO and leave room to save changes. Which option is better? Also, I wanted to install on an SD card because I thought it would be just like using a solid-state drive. Is this true, or do I not have my facts straight? David, a.k.a. Pyro Chameleon. Okay. Um, Larry, uh, I know he can use the um, the flash uh, storage, and it'll be pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, but I do not know how well it stands if you're going to do a lot of reads and writes to it. Right, exactly. Well, you know, it's the same deal with an SSD drive. And in theory, using an SD card should be the same as using a solid-state drive. But depending on the speed rating of the SD card, it might not give you the same speed as a solid-state drive does. So you want to make sure that you're using one of the super extreme high ultra capacity uh, <laughs> um, SD cards, whatever they're called. Uh, and each brand has something different. But whatever the most expensive one is, is typically the one that has the fastest speed. And bear in mind as well that you may uh, not get the same sort of durability out of the SD card as you would from a solid state drive. The SD card is meant for storing files rather than actually running a um, running an operating system from. And like you said, Bill, you may have a limited number of reads and writes, more of a limited number of reads and writes on an SD card than a solid state drive. But I've run Lubuntu on an SD card for about nine months before without any trouble at all. And it wasn't one of the super fast ones either. I didn't need the speed. So it, it lasted for nine months for me before it, it didn't fail. I just uh, ended up getting another computer and not needing to use the SD card anymore. So I reformatted <laughs> it and use it for storage now. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> Okay, so uh, hopefully that helps. Our next email is a gone Linux story. And this one is from Bob in Delray Beach, Florida. Bob writes, hi, Larry. Hi, Bill. Here is one of my going Linux stories for the podcast. I am a real geek. In my world, I use daily on several machines, Windows XP, Windows 7, Mac OS X, Puppy Linux, Ubuntu, Mint, Android, Peppermint, and I own a Chromebook too. As a hobby, I donated computers and installed Linux on them. Uh, then I loaded them up with as many ebooks, educational videos, and games as the hard drive will hold. Working through several charities, they are given to children in need. I lost count after giving away 100 computers. One of the charities that I work with is Family Promise. They take in homeless families for a matter of weeks and help them get back on their feet by providing shelter, food, assisting them with finding jobs, and housing. At my local chapter, they have a volunteer IT professional that maintains several office computers and four that were used by the families. The guest computers are used to help with looking for jobs, filling out online applications, and providing access to email. The charity was having a heck of a time keeping the Windows-based network working. Something or another seemed to fail daily. The IT pro was overwhelmed and about to quit. 
I offered to take over the maintenance of the four guest computers. There was great concern about the security of private files. What I did was to remove the guest computers from the network, set up direct access to the internet, and install Peppermint 5 on them. This OS is set up in such a way that it has just about all of the applications web-based. This means that all of the data that belongs to the guests is stored in the cloud, not on the computer. This instantly solves the security problem. Knowing that the old Windows-based network had problems just about every day, I held my breath, waiting to be contacted. That was about a year ago. There has been only one call. That was when a guest had a Windows-based CD program that would not run. <laughs> <laughs> I could have installed Wine and hoped that it would work. What they did was to let the individual use a Windows-based Office computer to run it. What amazed me was that non-tech users have no problems using Peppermint 5 Linux. I was expecting to have to give lessons on how to use it. The charity wanted me to write up pages of instruction. It wasn't necessary. All guest families own smartphones. They're all accustomed to web-based apps, and that just simply work. I believe that Peppermint 5 is a fantastic distro for those that simply want to get things done. As my recommendation for those that aren't interested in tinkering with the operating system, my kids are grown, but if I had school-aged children, I would insist that they use Peppermint 5 simply to avoid viruses and such. I have given away over 100 Linux computers to kids and I am yet and I have yet to hear of a complaint. Thanks for allowing me to share my story. Keep up the good work, Bob, in Delray Beach, Florida. Well, Bob, that is truly a gone Linux story. I agree, Peppermint 5 is a great Linux distro for new users, especially those that don't need to use the, the computer to store information locally. And I'm glad it's working out for you. And uh, thanks for all your support for those in need by providing free computers to people who need them. Yeah, that's real nice of him. So we have now Nightwise and his interview with LibreOffice from Fostem about a month ago. So here we go, and we'll be back to wrap up. I'm at the booth of LibreOffice here at FOSDEM 2015, and with me is Italo, uh, who is manning the LibreOffice booth. Now, for some people who are a little bit confused, what is the difference between LibreOffice and OpenOffice? So LibreOffice is a fork uh, of OpenOffice, and Apache OpenOffice, there's no more OpenOffice today, is another fork of OpenOffice. So they are two different forks of the same code base. Uh, one is the community fork, the other one is the enterprise fork, because has been was born uh, Apache OpenOffice because IBM wanted to create a product with a permissive license, while the community wanted a product with a copyleft license, which is LibreOffice. So that is uh, the what has happened, and uh, what has happened is that the uh, difference today is striking in terms of dimension of size of the community. Uh, LibreOffice is a community of probably around 10,000 people worldwide, with around 3,000 people active, and uh, with a core um, uh, group of people which are the members of the TDF Foundation, the Document Foundation, which is over 200 people. These are people that are active daily 
on the product. So the, the, the basic difference is this one. Uh, of course, Apache uh, OpenOffice uh, is uh, still a product, uh, a usable product. Uh, LibreOffice is probably a couple of years ahead in terms of development. Okay, so when I got to the booth, we had an interesting conversation about standards because when we take a look at LibreOffice or any Office suite, people are going, always going to say, well, you know, Microsoft's the standard, Doc or DocX is the standard, but that's actually not true, is it? Uh, it's totally false. So uh, there are two document standards, ODF and uh, OXML, which are recognized by ISO. The problem is that uh, ODF was standardized according to the, let's say, to the standard way of building a standard. So uh, the uh, OASIS, which is a consortium of companies and organizations, not only uh, vendors, but also uh, there are uh, governments, uh, there are individuals, ministries in different countries and so on. Uh, they took the open office format at the time. They changed it in a way that it could be standard. So they adapted uh, an already good uh, document format to make it even better. Uh, it took uh, kind of two years to go through the documentation, to go through the changes, uh, and it was based on consensus. So that is the way ODF was developed. Office Open XML is the format of Office 2007, documented as of Office 2000, Microsoft Office 2007, and standardized according to the fast track um, uh, process. Fast track process basically says that in six months, because you are already using standards, which is actually not true in the case of, of Office Open XML, uh, you can be standardized. Uh, so the reality is that uh, Office Open XML uh, is not available in a single version, which is totally funny for a standard. So each version of Microsoft Office uh, saves and reads a different version of the standard, which is already totally incredible. The word standard yeah. is starting to lose its <laughs> meaning. Exactly, exactly. And what is even more funny is that Office 2013, Microsoft Office 2013, uh, is the only one to save in the standard format, but it screws up the standard format. So, uh, especially if the user behaves like a normal user. So, uh, if the user opens the, for the, 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 the file, uh, inserts some data, and then he saves the file. In the default setting? It, no, ah. in the standard, standard file. Set, standard. So, if you I mean, every user would open a, a blank document, insert some data, and save it. If you do it, uh, if you... Uh, Microsoft Office assumes that you don't want to save it in the strict, which means in the real standard one. In the ODF? In, no, in uh, Office Open XML. At, at Office, yeah. Uh, so it, you ask the program to save it in the standard format, and the, the format is screwed up. All right. Because the program thinks one thing, and the user wants it to save it in another way. So it, I understand that, which is rather complicated. It took us two years to understand that, uh, an endless number of tests. But for instance, the English government that has standardized on ODF, when they have discovered, and actually it's me, uh, me as a user, not as a technical guy, that discovered the trick. 
because I, uh, it's the funny, my, my grandmother was born on February 28, 1900. And uh, which which is was not a leap year, although should be a leap year, but by rules is not a leap year. So I, I, I just took my the, the birthday and the death of my uh, grandmother and saved that in in the strict standard format. And uh, uh, office actually made my grandmother uh, birthday one day before, because they stripped the non-existing February 29, 1900 and by stripping one day they added one and a, a century <laughs> yeah. exactly and the Microsoft answer was but you didn't behave like a normal user I said no sorry I behaved like a normal user is your program that didn't behave like a normal program now if you use um, LibreOffice um, Let's say you say, okay, at home, I don't want to start using the cloud. I don't want to start using uh, Word uh, 2013. How good can you communicate with other people who aren't as wise and smart as you and are still on, 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 uh, on office uh, products? So interoperability is uh, increasing with every version. Uh, it, you should, people should know that Office 2013, Microsoft Office 2013 supports ODF. So the user of the latest version of Microsoft Office are able to communicate with users of LibreOffice in the native format of LibreOffice. But let's say that they still want to use the non-standard Office OpenXML. The, the non-standard Office standards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's not really an Office standard yeah, either. Yeah, exactly. So which is DocX, XLS, X, and PPTX. Uh, LibreOffice would read and save in that those formats and every version is improving the interoperability how uh, about backwards let's say somebody saves you a docx with uh, you know pictures of puppies in it will it survive yes yeah um, at the moment actually even uh, the um, uh, embed the, the encapsulated sorry they use the encapsulated term so they encapsulated binaries inside the standard which it's binary really is a, a standard, yeah. yeah exactly binaries are not cannot be a standard uh, what we do is that we preserve that in a space in uh, in the file so it shows up in some cases it might not show up but it's preserved in so when you save it back in the office it's not gone it's not gone it's still there although being a binary and in some cases a non-documented binary which is even worse. Uh, we we just preserve that as a blob inside. B blob of uh, we don't know what this exact, is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you will see a kind of uh, white uh, box somewhere. with a, with a little red cross exactly. like we used to get. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Unfortunately, this is an unfortunate situation, but uh, of course uh, standards are standards, and everyone should start to understand what the standard is, including users. So uh, if Microsoft brings out yet another document format, let's say DocXYZ or something, do you guys have to reverse engineer that or yes. are they providing you some code like, here, this is how we screwed up this time? Uh, unfortunately, the reality is that we, we, we already have to reverse engineer the actual standard because it includes binaries and the way that binaries are interconnected inside the 
standard. Uh, when we talk about standard, we talk about uh, a basic XML format, which is underlying the format that the user is seeing. So the user is probably not aware that under an ODF or an OXML file, there is an XML file. File XML is a markup is a standard markup language, so that makes the standard. But of course, you you can only have a standard markup language that makes the standard if all the other standards are respected, not just the XML but all the other ones. So, which means the way that you, you handle uh, the visualization of stuff. There are uh, uh, interpreters of code that allow the code to be visualized on, on a screen uh, and so on and so forth. So the fact that you save, print and, uh, and you use standards for all of these services. Uh, of course ODF, which is not actually maintained neither by uh, the Apache OpenOffice nor by the LibreOffice project, is maintained by a third-party uh, organization called Oasis. Uh, so we have to, com we ourselves we contribute to the standard, but then we have to comply with the standard. So it's not vendor-driven. Is user? We can say user in the sense that you have also user organization-driven. So we have to comply, and we have uh, to find ways of complying uh, with what the standard demands for the next version. Okay, um, just for the people who want to start using LibreOffice as well, where can you find LibreOffice and download it? Uh, so www.libreoffice.org. Uh, unfortunately, during the last three days, we had a few outages of the, the, the site because of the downloads. We Microsoft not adhering to standards. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we announced a new version and there was a, a kind of, the downloads were probably too many. Uh, but uh, it should work in, in other ways that you can uh, find uh, alternative, by digging on the website you can find alternative uh, links. But always, please, always go through our website to download the product. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for thank your you. time and good luck on FOSDAT. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks Nightwise for providing us that interview. That was very enlightening. Thanks, Nightwise. Okay. What's our next episode, Bill? Our next episode, Larry, is a recorded distro review that I did. So that's going to be exciting, I'm sure. Everybody's just waiting on pins and needles to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. So you, you talked about Peppermint. You talked about SUSE. You did some things on gaming. It's kind of a mixed bag, but it's it is, overall but, a distro review. Yeah, but just uh, just to let me know, I also harsh on a few uh, projects and on that too so uh, I better put my flame proof uh, under a wear on because I'm sure I'm going to get flamed for some of the harsh things I had to say to about one certain one <laughs> <clears throat> anyway yeah, I think you enjoy it um, so anyway our next our next episode is distro review and so until then you can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux podcast Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73.
Theme music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.